You're listening to the Well Woman Healthy Lifestyle Podcast, episode number 30. And today we had the great opportunity to interview Miss Sarah Nannan. She is a life reclaiming expert and coach for widows, as well as a best-selling author of Grief Unveiled, a widow's guide to navigating your journey in life after loss. Sarah is committed to helping widows find empowerment and inspiration within themselves so that they can live with passion and purpose in their life after loss. In a world offering survival skills and coping strategies for the bereaved, Sarah offers hope, inspiration, empowerment on the journey through grief. With her dynamic background as a yoganai, birth doula, Navy veteran, professional life coach, and mother, in addition to her personal experience as a young widow, it allows her to integrate the deepest wisdoms and thoughtful practices into a healing journey that is as accessible as it is deeply transformative. Sarah's life reclaim, reclamation work supports widows as they grieve with intention and step forward into the life of their dreams as well. The courageous conversations using vulnerability as a superpower in her book, podcast and coaching programs, Sarah stirs something in widows that allows them to honor their stories of what has been while moving with clarity towards living the life of their dreams. She lives in central Illinois with her fiance and their four children. And I am so honored to have her as a guest today. So please give her a virtual high five and let's welcome Sarah Nannan to the Well Woman Healthy Lifestyle podcast. Let's dive in. Well, women, it's time for a new perspective on women's health. A time to understand that your greatest wealth is your health. A time to make self-care your number one priority. A time to recognize that good health is the only way to live your best life and do all that you can in this world. So join me on this journey where we'll explore women's health topics from a medical provider's viewpoint. Have conversations about everyday healthy lifestyle options and enjoy interviews with other well women we can all learn from. It's time to demystify women's health and learn practical ways to apply self-care to every part of our lives. This is the Well Woman Lifestyle Podcast and I'm your host, Michelle Broad, certified women's and adult nurse practitioner, daughter, wife, mother, and all out women's health enthusiast. So you ready to start the journey? Let's go. All right, ladies. Well, welcome back to another episode. And today we have a really special guest, Sarah Nannan. I said it right. I always get confused when I say everybody's name. But she is going to be talking to us about a topic that is sometimes hard to talk about, and that's grief. And I heard about her through a friend, and she's got a great story. So where are you today? I'm in central Illinois, Bloomington, Illinois. Oh, is it? So tell me, I have to ask everybody, how's the weather there? It's hot. We're in the dog days of summer, hot, humid, lots of mosquitoes. Oh, yes. Well, it's very hot here. We are in the 110 degree weather most of the time. And it's sometimes it's been humid and just, yeah, I've been infestated by ants every day. So it's a major oh. challenge. They want to come in because they're hot and they want the water. So. Of course. Smart guys. <laughs> So what I want to start off with is I want you to tell us a little bit about you. You know, how did you get into this grief thing? Um, I know that you, you know, came about your young widow. I want to hear all about the good, bad, and, you know, indifferent. Okay, great. Yeah, that's a big, I can talk for hours about this, but I'll try and give you the, <laughs> the short and sweet version. Um, before I became a widow, I was doing a lot of uh, birth work. So I was a doula and I was a childbirth educator and did some maternity photography for women amongst, you know, being a mama and growing up these babies. And when I was 32, um, I was living on a, a Marine Corps air station in Japan. I had a six-week-old newborn and three other kids who were between uh, two and five years old. And some gentlemen in uniform came to my door like they do in the movies in their finest dress uniforms and informed me that there had been an accident and that he had died in the accident. So in that moment, like a flash, this dreamy life that we were growing with four babies and living on in Japan and all the adventures we had ahead of us all kind of felt like they got pulled out from under me like this rug. And I had to figure out what the heck do I do now? Who am I now? What's, what's, what happens to someone like me now? And uh, the immediate prognosis that my, my mind came up with was nothing good. So 
I packed up my four kids and 13 suitcases and four car seats, hopped on an airplane, flew home to receive his body, do the funeral. I moved in with my parents because I didn't have a house because I had been living in Japan. I didn't have a car. So the next year was really about survival and putting life together for us um, in the aftermath of all of that and figuring out how to be how to be us now as a family of five instead of a family of six. So of course, what came next is this mama bear trying to figure out how to be a healthy one. And um, I was really worried because the idea of grief in our culture basically is attached permanently with depression and mental illness and, you know, this not so politically correct idea of baggage and, um, you know, feeling like you're damaged goods. And I was just terrified that that had to be my reality. I, you know, I hadn't seen any other option other than that in Hollywood in sitcoms, that's just sort of the way it is. Even in the fairy tales, we talk about the widows and the crones who live on the edge of the woods that are, you know, maybe crazy and might be trying to eat your children. So that was really the only model that I mentally had in my uh, head and heart about what was possible. So I went on this journey of trying to find myself and looking for hope and inspiration and possibility for myself as a young widow. And it was really, really hard to find. I got a lot of survival skills and coping strategies. And that felt useful for the short term, but the long term, I was like, okay, when do I get to graduate to the um, inspirational speaking room? Is there one of those where like, once you've got the coping skills, then you get to go have hope again? And it just seemed like it stopped. The support stopped at surviving. And I I decided to go um, searching for something more than that. And that's where I kind of found myself and this idea of mindfulness and um, where the transformation I think truly began. So what I found there, then I decided I don't want to keep this a secret because if I had to look this hard, I don't want other people like me to have to look so hard. And so that's as part of my journey, I then became committed to sharing my stories. Um, I wrote a book and now I'm a coach for other uh, widows who are searching for something more than surviving in their life after loss. Yeah, I definitely, I, I loved your website. I went there. So I had, I kind of got like five, well, yeah, I think five little categories that I kind of wanted to touch on too, to talk with you about. So the first one, yeah, is this, um, you talk about this, you know, you had this massive loss and, you know, and then transitioning into, you know, this life afterwards. So tell me a little bit about, okay, so you found out that your husband passed away. You moved from Japan back to where your parents were. And then, you know, what happened after that? I mean, I, I guess what it is, is I want to talk about too, is that as women, we have, you know, we're multiple roles. You're a mama, you know, some of us are working, you know, some of us are taking care of parents on one end, kids on another end. And sometimes then you get this loss, whatever it may be. You know, when we talk about here in the States, it's, you know, and this is another conversation I want us to have a little bit too, is loss is many things. It's not just mm-hmm. what we think about as humans, you know, or pets. And that's kind of like what comes to mind, but you still have to hold it all together. You know, you got to right. still go, you got to got to be the mother for the kids. You got to be taking care of the family. You got to mm-hmm. go to your job, and we have to act like, or supposedly, quote unquote, we're supposed to act like, you know, nothing's you know going on. Okay, and even right. though we had this, and I'm quite, you know, I'm I'm a few years older than you, so you know, back in in you know when I was growing, we didn't have like family leave thing like you have now. We didn't see like oh, you know, you just had to press on like nothing mm-hmm. was wrong. And I mean, I lost my dad when I was um when I was twenty. And I was right in the midst of nursing school. And I remember them telling me, um, well, you can't go home for the funeral because it's so intensive that if you miss a week, you might as well just not come back again. Mm-hmm. And so I said, well, too bad, I'm going. And you know, and then you come back and you're immersed back into school, like regular life. Yeah. And it's like, you have to act like nothing mm-hmm. has happened. You know? And then I, I just want to talk about that too. What happens when we stuff all that stuff down? And if we don't let it express or, or come out like for years? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really important thing. And and while you can say that it has changed so much, I'm not sure that it has, at least culturally. I think, you know, we've got those permissions built in where you get two weeks off or whatever, whatever it is um, to take care of what you need to take care of. But the truth is culturally, the people around us even uh, really need us to keep it together um, for, for their comfort. And so there isn't this culture of um, welcomed expression or... Um, even vulnerability, really. I think that vulnerability and empathy are two of the things that are so missing from our culture. And so what do you do is the question you're asking. And and I think um, one of the most important things that I really talk a lot about is creating space for yourself because 
we treat busyness as like the fix-all, right? It's heralded as you being an exceptional person and everyone knows you're succeeding because you're busy. It's like a badge of honor to be busy. And when you have a devastating loss, whether it's like you said, it's a broader than just a person. It can be health, it can be financial, it can be relationship, it can be a friend. When that happens, one of the things we tell people, our professional grief support system tells people to stay busy, to get a routine, to have you know the schedule to your day, to have this rhythm to your day. And I think that's actually really damaging because what we're telling people to do, honestly, is to out-hustle what you're feeling. Because if you stay so busy, you can't actually interface with your own inner landscape. And it's really damaging because it, it, A, it, it disconnects you from yourself, which means you can't possibly heal. But also, um, it becomes your new reality. And we forget what it's like to not have that suppressed. We don't even know it's there as time passes. And unless we come to these um, you know, practices or ways of living and choosing and being in our days where we're willing to slow down and take to inquiry what, what's actually real for us, um, it just kind of becomes the new normal. And so we, we live in this cultural landscape of suppression. And um, as a result, we're a bunch of sort of people walking around with this pretty outside and this really, you know, falling apart, melting, rancid, rotting inside that we, we pretend isn't there. Yeah, I think it's so true. And especially, you know, with you being so young, and it happening, you know, when you were talking about, um, you know, being, you know, people looking at like pity and you were talking about, I, I was reading on your site, like projection and the judgment that you got. So, you know, talk to me from, you know, that perspective, you know, about being young and being about, you know, a mom and, you know, how did people see you? And then, you know, how did that project into how you started seeing yourself and how to, and then from there working your way into a new view of everything? That's such a great question. Um, the pity and the projection was a really interesting thing because it seemed like um, both choices I could make on any occasion were sort of wrong. And so on the one hand, people saw me as this this really pathetic, like pitiful, tragic figure. And that was a lot of them projecting their fear of, oh my gosh, if that happened to me, I don't know what would happen. So worst case scenario happened to her, we project onto her like, she's screwed, it's over good luck, babe, like do your best, but we all know it's, it's over. Um, and at the same time, there was this idea that I was so strong and everyone told me how inspiring I was and how strong I was. And so both of those felt like um, I felt really invisible inside of that, right? Because on the one hand, they see you as pitiful, which you start to absorb and think like, is it true? Like, am I really this damaged for it? Like, is this how I'm going to feel for the rest of forever? Are people going to be looking at me like I have this scarlet W on my forehead for the rest of my life? But also, um, because of the you're so strong language that was used, I was afraid that if I had a day where I needed to crumple up or a day where I was so exhausted and so frustrated and so afraid that I needed to just cry, that then people would be like, aha, we knew it. You were totally faking the strong thing. And so it kind of seemed like no matter what we were, I was choosing, um, there was somebody who was sort of waiting to like, shove it in my face a little bit. And so what I had to do was truly just turn toward myself and commit to being incredibly authentic and in integrity with what was real for me. And if it was a day that I needed to laugh, I was going to laugh and I was going to live in that moment. And if it was a day that I was going to cry, I was going to cry and tell people why. And often those days were the same day. And so giving myself permission to let it all be real and not judge myself first, because it's truly... I was judging myself more critically and more verbally than the people around me were. They were trying to make sense of it. And I was the one judging myself and I put myself through the ringer as a result of that. So being aware of, you know, giving ourselves permission, not even grace, but just permission, like, Hey, what's real right now? Be that, do that, choose that, feel that, let that be enough. Yeah. It, I think sometimes too, cause we're taught, you know, we look at ourselves how other people see us. Mm -hmm. And then we think that we have to respond that way, you know? Mm -hmm. So, okay. So talk to me too about, you know, we have, we have moms who listen to the show too. So tell me about, you know, as a mom coming from that perspective, you know, you, you not only are you having to feel and deal with your grief, but then you've got, you know, your beautiful babies that you're trying to help transition through this same thing. And they're dealing with it on a completely different level. You know, how do you, how does that, how does that go about? 
I think there's two things in there that are really important. I'm glad you asked this, this question. And the first one is I had to make space for myself because as you know, as a mom, you're in the trenches all day, all night, middle of the night. There's not really a safe time where you're guaranteed quiet or space alone, especially especially if you have younger kids. But I think all of our kids need us. We were talking earlier about you know your grown-up daughter even still gives you a call. And so I had to sort of separate this idea that um, you know, self-care and needing space and time away more than an hour even was, was okay. It felt really selfish and wrong um, to want. And I think that's something that we wrestle with in our culture is mm-hmm. this idea that motherhood is magical every minute of the day and we're supposed to just like, luxuriate in the bliss of it. It's hard work. It's exhausting. Yeah. And if you're dealing with grief or, you know, any sort of transition or trauma or pain on top of it, like you've got to, it's, you need self-care anyway, but if you've got something big, you're waiting through making space. And so giving myself permission to um, ask for help from family, to get a babysitter, to travel for a long weekend, or even a couple of weeks was huge for me because those were the moments when I could actually feel my feet on the floor and breathe and make sense of what I was feeling. And, and in the daily hustle, I had to just show up and spin the plates and feed the kids and, and get them to where they needed to be. And there wasn't like, that's such a structured survival space where you're just like on. Yeah. And we try to, you know, we try to like save that stuff for later, except ne- later never comes. And the women I work with talk about, you know, alone in my closet at 2 a.m. when I know it's safe to break down. And I'm like, yeah. we need more than alone in our closet at 2 a.m. But the other side of the question that you asked was how did I, you know, how do you show up for kids? because they're having such a different question. And I think what it, what's really important for us is to create this, um, this separation between their experience and our experience, because we can make ourselves really accountable for their emotional um, well-being and their emotional experience. And it, from the very start, I was committed to, you know, letting them have their authentic experience that was alongside mine, but different and separate then. And it wasn't something that I needed to save them from any more than somebody else needed to save me from. Yeah. So I tried to be really mindful about acknowledging it. And the great thing is with kids, um, while it feels more complex, it's actually, I think, more scientific for them. They can see the world in a way that we grown-ups can't because they don't know as much about meaning making as we do and about predicting the future. So they're very, they're very focused in the present. What does this mean right now? How does this change things right now? Um, and yeah, that it was scary, right? Because it takes the stable terrain of their life and it, it turns it sideways just like it did mine. But um, for the kids, it was really more about helping them see what was still here um, and giving them avenue. Like you can ask me any question anytime and I will answer it. And that, that's a big thing because you're driving your kids to preschool and your five-year-old says, mom, what do people look like when they're dead? And then you have like, at the stoplight, you're trying to, you know, fight back your own tears because you know that your five-year-old's wrestling with this question and you're reminded about the question and why he's asking the question. Then you have to give him an honest and um, kind, loving answer because he deserves it. And so really my policy with that is be as honest as possible. That's also appropriate for their age, right? Because a five-year-old's different than a 15-year-old. And um, I think the wisest bit of wisdom that I ever got was to know that they're going to grieve in stages as they develop. And so you only have to support them where they're at right now. And when they become a nine-year-old and a 13-year-old and a 20-year-old and a 43-year-old, they're going to have different experiences with grief. They're going to have different questions. They're going to have different emotional landscape to explore. And so our job isn't to save them from it as much as it is to just be a safe person, to be beside them in their journey that they know that they can turn to Um, and, and letting them see ours. You know, it's okay for them to see you cry. Um, as much as I, I, I also said, it's also okay if you don't cry, right? There's no expectation. And I think so much of us who are grieving and trying to do it <clears throat> in an authentic way, we get tangled up in this, like, what am I supposed to be doing right now? And so for our kids, as much as for ourselves, it's so important to just, what's, what do I need right now? What do I feel right now? And let that be the right thing instead of something else that you think you should be doing. I think should is like the worst four letter word of all of them. And if you're ever tangled up with should, it's a red flag to reevaluate, you know, and come, come toward yourself with a little tender curiosity and say, what's actually real. Yeah. I think that when you, when you suffer loss and and anything it does, it brings it, you know, full circle and you really start to, and it's, it's unfortunate that, that 
illness and loss, you know, bring us to that perspective of, okay, what is, you know, the meaning of, you know, quote unquote, my life, you know, up to now? Um, and, and what am I doing my real passion, my real joy, my living my life? Because like you said, it's the 20, I call it the 24 seven mantra that, you know, especially women and, you know, because we're moms, we're everything. We're supposed to be on all the time. And it's, you know, it's, it's kind of, like I said, it's society's giving us the double-edged sword. You know, it's like, keep going and we'll just give you the stuff to keep on going. You know, you don't have to slow down. You know, that's how the drive-through came through. And you got to take your kids, you got to take soccer and they need food. Okay. No time to get home. Okay. Just go through a drive-through, you know, you got a cell phone, you can be, you know, multitasking in your car, running a meeting, talking to your kids in the back, you know, in the whole nine yards. And I think that, you know, you don't really, until these pivotal moments in our life, like loss and grief and stuff that just, you know, cause us to stop and mm-hmm. to really kind of just be still and kind of think of all this stuff that are really, we don't get to that as, especially I think as women, cause we're going, we're doing so much, we're the center of our families. Mm-hmm. So there was this question that you, know, you, it was a statement that you said on your website that I want to talk to you about too. It says that you were interested in connecting with widows. And I want you to tell me about this, um, who asked the question, what's my part in this when it comes to life after loss? Mm. So what is the, you know, tell me, what is it, what's my part in this? What does that have? What do you mean when you're talking about that or asking about that? Oh, I love that you asked me this. So this is where I get to go a little bit outside the coloring book lines and say that I think that a lot of what we have created as far as our, our culture of grief and healing um, in, in widowhood and uh, for widowers too is... Um, we really become the the tragic vi- the victim of a tragedy, and that's not completely untrue. It's a tragic thing that you're suffering as a result of. But I think that we, as a society, have sort of agreed upon the truth that that's where it ends. In the rest of your life is going to be essentially tainted um, because of this incident. And so the women that I work with are the ones who say that doesn't feel like enough. Is this really all there is? And, and they're the ones who are committed to taking personal, personal responsibility for what comes next. Now, this isn't a conversation about mental illness, right? Because that's a different thing than grief. And we've made grief into pathology that we've decided as a culture that we really can't outrun. Mm-hmm. Um, we really can't move through. And, and our job isn't to outrun it. It's to walk into it and explore it and, um, there's this destination on the other side that I call the sweetness on the other side that nobody tells you about, nobody knows about because we aren't taking the journey. And so it's truly this journey of um, one coming, coming toward yourself. And what, what's interesting is that as a result of this loss, we find ourselves and a lot of us refining ourselves for the first time. Yeah. Um, and what we don't know is while, um, you know, I was madly deeply in love with this beautiful man who I was married to, I was a part of my life for 14 years, even though I was so young, we had um, really sp- spent a beautiful life together. And it's easy for us to compare. I remember hearing other stories and be like, well, she didn't love her husband as much as I loved mine, clearly, if she could heal. And we do some of that and it keeps us stuck. But But bigger than that is this thing that we don't know that while they were an amazing person and an amazing part of our story, um, they weren't the whole story. And, w- and we've been fed this idea that marriage is the whole story. It becomes the whole story. And so we dedicate and commit ourselves so wholly to that, that marriage that we actually lose the me inside of the we. And the thing that your, your husband or your spouse, whoever the person was, um, that they were doing that you didn't know is that they were this giant mirror and they were reflecting your magnificence back to you that you didn't know how to see. And so without that mirror in your life, you don't see your own magnificence. Now you see your widowhood. Now you see your tragedy. Now you see your victimhood. And if that's all you're ever willing to see, it's going to be true. And the thing that we have to do is come toward ourselves and say, okay, here I am completely unraveled in a whole new way of being. And I don't know how to be here. But am I willing to learn how to be here? Um, I liken it to this idea of metamorphosis. Before this thing happened, you're the caterpillar. And in the in the immediate aftermath, in that in that darkest, deepest pit of grief and transition, it's essentially like being inside the chrysalis. And like that that caterpillar had to dangle upside down, lose all its skin, completely turn into goo, right? It turns into this cellular liquid form. There's no caterpillar. 
and there's certainly no butterfly in sight. And, and so many of us, myself included, can really, um, you know, connect with that sense of being completely undone, completely vulnerable, completely in the darkness and like terrified of what does this mean? What, am I going to be here forever? Like the butterfly doesn't know it's about to turn into this beautiful creature with iridescent wings and flutter through the air with ease. It has no idea. There's a lot of struggle in nature when we see these transformations. And so the women that I love to work with um, and the ones who, who find that sweetness on the other side are the ones who are willing to say, I'm willing to do this struggle to come toward myself, to reclaim my life and to, to work on um, finding my way to the life of my new dreams that I didn't know I wanted and I'm still not sure I believe in, but I'm willing to take the journey in that direction. And then one day you look up and you find yourself and you're like, oh my gosh, this is so different. And it's because all of those micro decisions that you've been making over the course of months and weeks and years have amounted to you really evolving into this new version of yourself. Yeah, I, it's... A new version of yourself. And then two, you know, talk a little bit too. Let's explore the conversation that you are a new person. You're a new you. So people see you. Okay. So they knew you before, then they know you during. Okay. And then you're this new thing on the other side. And are they always willing to accept us and and that new, and that new thing, or they just, or do they, or do you find that, you know, that you have to fight to have people see who you are because you are different, you know, experiences, change us no matter what. And, and, and you find the blessings in all of those experiences, but you are not the same person today that you were when you were married, that you were when you were going through that grief. And I think that sometimes, you know, even our friends and our family, they get focused on, on who we used to be or mm-hmm. who we were when we were going through that stage, but not where we are now and trying to find the language to say, no, you know, you're not seeing me now. So tell me a little bit about, mm-hmm. I mean, what was that transition like? Yeah. So I think that's a really interesting point to make that our families get so fixated on who we used to be, because I think as a culture, we sort of use that as the metric to whether or not we're okay, right? When, when we're grieving, when we're deeply impacted by this tragedy, everyone just wants us to be okay. They're coming at it from this place of love and their version of K is who you used to be. And so again, with this, you know, the sage wisdom of grief support, they say, try to do the things that you love to do. That's one of the things. Like do all the hobbies that you love to do. And so often we're like, that doesn't really work for me anymore. Yeah. And we take that as evidence that we're still grieving, that we're still screwed up, that we're emotionally damaged forever. Um, instead of seeing like, this is not who I am anymore. That, that's not something that actually that fills me up. And the same thing happens with our people. And you're going to get a mixed bag of this, right? And some of this depends on who you surrounded yourself with as your community uh, before the tragedy happened, right? Um, if you were with this really eyes wide open, conscious, paying attention, mindful community who had open minds and open hearts, they're probably going to evolve and grow with you and honor your journey and honor your transformation and, and be in awe of who you're becoming. Um, but we also know that real life is very real and that's probably not the, the majority of our experience. And so it is a struggle to... Um, to identify your most intimate tribe. And that's one of the things that we do some work around is like, who are the people in your life who you feel most unconditionally safe with, loved by, and seen? And usually if like, if we're all honest, no matter where we're at in our life, even like us right now, if we're really honest, we probably have like two, maybe three people tops where we can like a hundred percent say that these people are willing to see me and, and be beside me in whatever comes and whatever I experience. Um, and so it becomes this idea of maybe letting go a little bit of like, we, we cling so tightly to the people in our world because we've already, we're, we already feel alone, right? This yeah. person has died. And if I lose all these people too, then I'll really be alone. This, the, it's this, I think it's this primordial tribal wiring of like, I need these people to be safe. I need my tribe or I'm out in the woods alone with a saber tooth tiger fending for myself. Yeah. Um, and this is the modern day context. And so what happens is we, again, we filter our needs. We filter our experiences so heavily. We put on this mask. I call it the masquerade of grief. We put this, this face on the strong face, um, the gracious widow, right? And we, we do all the right things and we say all the right things, but they don't match the inside. Yeah. And so the other option is, what if I'm willing to be misunderstood? 
What if I'm willing to be judged in the name of being in alignment with what's most true for me? What I know and believe is an integrity with my heart and soul and, and my future self. Um, and there is a lot of secondary loss that comes in the grief experience for that very reason, because people either cannot understand the transformation or they're unwilling to because it changes what they need you to be for their grief process too. So it's a complicated thing, but the truth is you're right. We lose people along the way. And I think the most kind thing we can do for ourselves in our healing journey is to be willing to let go of those people who are not unconditionally loving, safe, and willing to see us exactly as we are from each day to each day. Yeah, no, that was, that was beautifully put. And you know, it, it's with a lot of things, not just like you were talking about with grief, but I think as we make different transitions in our life, we go from, there's like a lot of women have a hard time going from like one age group to another, yes. or you are, you know, you're in a career and you get laid off and you know, that's who you identified with and, um, you know, and making these shifts. And then also people like around you who see you like that and they constantly, that's how they want to see you, you know, and you're like, yeah. you're, trying, you're trying to fight, like saying, no, I'm just not there anymore. Like I was having this conversation, not that it has to do with grief or anything with my, um, financial person the other day. And I told her, I said, I'm just, I'm at a very different space right now than I was when I was talking to you about investing, you know, two, three years ago. It's yeah, it's important to me now, but I'm not gung ho like how I used to be because mm -hmm. I'm, I'm in, I'm looking at life from a different perspective. And she's like, no, you gotta do this and you gotta do that. And I'm like, no, you, you're not hearing what I'm saying. I don't yeah. really care. Mm -hmm. You know, if I have, you know, $3 million left to retire on when I get to be that age. I just, I want to know what can I do then with what I have, I'm going to have, let's structure a plan around that because that's to me attainable. I think sometimes we just look for things and we're striving for things that just aren't there at the moment, you know, and that we can't attain. So that, it's, that was great. The yeah. other thing too, that I really want to talk about because, um, I, I loved your manifesto. I did. <laughs> and I want to talk about this too, because I find this happens a lot. You said in, in there that grief, that people identify that grief becomes your identity. I want to quote mm -hmm. you correctly. And I find that a lot too, like with my women clients, when they come in, they, you know, for whatever reason we start to identify, they identify like with that, with that disease or with what's yeah. going on and they find comfort in that. And I guess maybe it's comfort for them, but it's also sometimes like an excuse for, for other people, how they see, you know, them. Mm -hmm. So, and I'm like, you know, we're, we're more than our disease, you know? Um, and so, you know, you're more than your grief. So talk to me about, you know, about this grief identity and, you know, how do you get past that? And to, you know, what are some steps even because I think the steps for getting over grief identity are also some of those same steps that, you know, I want, um, my, my wellness woman to hear, you know, when you are diagnosed with the disease, you yeah. are more than that. So let's move past that because disease is a grief, you know, and it's a loss. So mm -hmm. let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. I love that you're bringing the universality of this conversation because people can hear grief and widowhood, but really like this applies to everything in life. It applies to motherhood. It, it applies to health. It applies to wealth. It applies to like all the ways that we do all the things of being people. Um, we take, we take those on as um, like a badge or of honor, um, a, a mark about who we are, that identity piece. And so again, I think the first and most important thing is to really identify your tribe, your, um, your safe community, because when you surround yourself with those people, they are able to see you, the person, not you, the cancer patient, not you, the widow, not you, the unemployed, like whatever your thing is, they'll be able to see the whole of you. And again, be that mirror to sort of reflect back the whole of the person, not just that one piece. The other thing I think that is um, really important is, is to practice this idea of um, mindfulness. Now I'm a yoga teacher. And so this is obviously a, a big part of uh, my world. I own a yoga studio here and it's my favorite thing because it woke me up from my grief in a way that I didn't need to be woken up. I did um, a 200 hour yoga teacher training program the year after my husband died because I was sort of clinging for like, I need something to do to be, to call myself in the world other than a widow. And um, I'm so glad that I did because what I found there was this place inside myself where I could crawl out of the, the loud onslaught of voices and noises in my head about all the fears and all the anxiety and all the what ifs and all the impossibility. And I could climb into this safe pocket of peace 
And what I found there wasn't just peace, but it was this really loud, clear voice that came up from my belly called my intuition. And once I found that, I was so much more able to see clearly who I wanted to be, who I was becoming, to honor the journey I had already walked, and to see with eyes wide open the way forward. That's when I started noticing synchronicity and starting appreciating these wide open doors that were showing up. And every time I, I acknowledged them with this gratitude practice, there was, there was more abundance of possibility. And so I think mindful practices, whether it's yoga or meditation or breathing practices or just walking quietly in the woods, if we can create enough quiet in our life to let the noise and the chaos of the anxiety and the fear and the doubt and the shame and the judgment, all the things that come with whatever we're grieving, um, we find ourselves there in a truth that we didn't probably ever know about before. And so that was a huge gift for me. And it's a big part of what I teach and coach my clients around is, can you create, and I say, can we create a chrysalis? Can we create a life where you don't resent everything in your schedule, where there's time for you to sit, where there's time for you to enjoy, where there's opportunities for you to feel strong in your body, where there's opportunities for you to sleep and nourish yourself. Can we take care of our most basic human needs first? drinking enough water, eating food that's actually food, sleeping at night, when we can start to heal our physical body, because that impacts, um, grief impacts our, our physical physiology, our well-being there too. And if, we, if that's not taken care of, we can't do the head and the heart work. Um, and so creating a life that is sustainable and mindful, um, not that you have to sit in a cave and meditate all day. That's what you know the ancient yogis did. But there is a way where you can weave this idea of mindfulness sustainably into the modern day in a way that looks like I'm going to take one minute every hour to just like breathe and feel my feet on the floor and like feel the nervous energy in my body and let that settle down. If we can keep bringing ourselves back to this place of stillness, we have so much wisdom and so much clarity that allows us to then be really intentional about where we put our energy and what I choose next. And so like that is the most magical thing. It sounds very simple and we make it very complicated. Um, but it's something that is accessible to everybody everywhere all day long, every day. So that's a huge piece of it is, is creating mindfulness so that you can cultivate awareness of yourself, of your needs, of the amount of noise that you have in your head and discerning between the noise and the true voice that comes up from your belly instead of the chaos of your head. Um, and then I think another piece of, of uh, sort of setting aside that identity um, is being willing to be uh, really curious. And, and this is the thing that I call, this is when my version of radical self-love is, can I be as curious about myself, the, the secrets of myself, the truths of myself, the secret needs and wants and desires of myself that I don't even know about yet because I've never explored them, as I would be of a lover or a partner? Because that's what we do when we fall in love, Right oh my gosh, how does he like his steak? Where does he like to go? How does he spend his time? How does he like his pillow? How, like we learn all of the details about these people. And then when I, when I meet my clients, and this was true for myself too, I didn't know how I wanted my anything. I didn't know how I liked my eggs. I didn't know what drink I ordered because he just did it for me. Or I just, we, we just got the pizza that we got because he liked that pizza. Or the kids like the pizza. Like we've deferred so much of ourselves to whatever everybody else wants that we don't actually know what is my preference? Yes. What is my preference when I'm totally and completely alone? And so this radical self-love for me looks like traveling. And that's, I know that that's very luxurious and I'm so grateful for my parents' willingness to, um, to jump in and hang with my kids to give me some time away because that was the only time I could find myself in a truly unfiltered state where I wasn't filtering my thoughts or needs around anyone else's schedule or anyone else's needs. Who am I when I'm totally alone and left to my own vices and my own schedule and I have the entire spaciousness of a day to spend? What will I do? What will I choose? And that was how I started to learn about who I was. And that's what we all have to do in this journey, this willingness to come toward ourselves with tender curiosity and say, who, who am I? I don't even know. And that's a scary thing to honor. But for most of us, I think if we're honest, we don't actually, actually know most of the answers. And so it's such a rich experiment to follow that, like pull that thread 
and figure out who am I on this day in this way? Where am I in this restaurant with these people? And then can we become so integrated that we're actually the same person all the time? Even when we have those opportunities to filter, can we still use our voice to have those same preferences and be willing to play nice with others and take into account their preferences too, but that ours suddenly matter? And it's things as simple as when you need to go to the bathroom, the first time you notice it, you should go. Because how many women out there have waited nine hours because there wasn't time to use the toilet? That's just a real thing. And so can we unfilter ourselves and become more attuned to our basic needs first and then our preferences and desires next and weave together this really beautiful life that we fall in love with? And we don't need anyone to be in love there. The, the, The person later is the icing on the cake. When you become your own soulmate, that's when you know you're ready to explore inviting another person back in again. Yeah. And I don't think that most of us, you know, go there too, because, you know, you're hitting like on all the hot buttons. It seems yeah. like you must be my soul sister out there. <laughs> of but, course. But like I tell women too, because I find that women do not, you know, we're so good at caring for others. We do that great. But when it comes yeah. to caring for ourselves, you know, we're on the back burner. Yeah. So my whole message to, you know, to the women that I talk to and on the podcast and in the blog and everywhere else is that, you know, like they say to put your oxygen mask on for a reason mm-hmm. yourself first so you can save other people. Because if you are not to yourself and good for you, then you are not good for anybody else either. And I think that so many of the things that you said are so true. We hit on so many society expectations, you know, that are, Mm. that are shown to us in the magazine, on TV and movies, you know, in commercials, that this is who, you know, we're supposed to be that I think so many of us get lost in that. And you're right. If you, if you say the truth, am I, am I really this person in all areas of my life? Because we tend to be different people for different things. You know, I'm, I'm this way with my friends. I'm this way with my husband. I'm this way with my kids. And that's why I think we get so confused, not only with all those hats, because those are internal hats here, but then all the other hats that we have to wear. And I think that women get so exhausted and we're seeing so many more, um, I can tell you that anxiety, stress, depression, um, you know, overweight, you know, are the top things that women come in for. I mean, number one, stress, you know, lack of sleep, because I think it's just, it's people don't identify. It's those emotional factors that are running in the back of your brain that you're of who you have to be and who you don't have to be and all these different areas that exhaust you, but you're just not identifying those. So I love it when you say mindfulness and meditation, because this month in our membership, we're focusing on, on meditation and it's just taking five minutes out to really think that way and to kind of disconnect. And I think that, you know, you feel exhausted when you start this process, because I know when I started really figuring out like, how do I really want my life to look? Okay. I've been, you know, I've been practicing medicine for, you know, for over two decades and Friday is my last day. And I'm just like, okay, so now I'm into this new thing. People are asking me like, oh, what are you going to do now? And I'm like, you know what? All I really want to do is I want to sit in my backyard with a cup of coffee and just breathe, you know, and just take some downtime to really Mm -hmm. just be, I don't want to be anything. I don't want to go anywhere. I don't want to do anything. I just want to be, I told my husband, I just want to feel no stress for a while. And we live in a world where we're told that we're supposed to, and we're constantly striving from little kids all the way up till now. We're filling our lives with all these things to be or to become or to be better at. And um, I think we're in this really pivotal time of unlearning all of that. And can I, can I just be, is it enough for me to just be and do the things that I'm inspired to do and to love the people that I love and to let that be enough? Um, I think it's such an important thing and I'm so glad we're having this conversation here and, and elsewhere because really we've been, we've been trained, modeled, uh, mentored and programmed to be good. Ultimately, we're all trying to be good women, wives, lovers, partners, mothers, sisters, daughters, all the things we're trying to be good. And I think if we let go of that expectation of how can I be good and just let ourselves be a mother and be a daughter and be a lover how much better we'll actually be at it because it will be coming from our authentic self and it'll be inspired by like the truth of our soul and how we long to show up for people and be with people and create and love um, and serve instead of what we should do. It's back to that should word. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, no, it's so true. It's like I, the pendulum has swung, you know, way over here 
you know, the 24 seven mantra. And I think now, you know, we're seeing it kind of swing back this way to being more like you, you see, you hear the word mindfulness, you hear meditation, yeah. you hear it scares now. people so much. Well, because, you know, they, we think that, oh God, you know, it's like just sitting out in the desert somewhere or somewhere with our legs crossed right. in the, you know, the lotus position humming all day long. Yeah. And we don't know how, I, I really, I think what is scary, what's so scary is, mm-hmm. is that we don't know how to do it. And the scariness is the quietness and the stillness that you have to have to, in order to kind of go there, because it's in those still moments that we really have to, I know for me, I'm asking myself like those scary questions, you know, and I have to answer them because I need to be truthful to myself. And it's like, I decided that, you know, in my job, and one of the reasons that, you know, that I'm leaving is because I love what I do, but I cannot practice in the way that it is today the way that I and my heart and my integrity wants to do it. So mm-hmm. I've been like for the last, you know, five, 10 years, you know, practicing out of integrity. And, you know, you can only do that for so long until it kind of creeps up on you and you say, I just can't do this anymore. You know, I'm waking up every day. I hate going to work. I hate my job. I'm just, I don't want to talk to people anymore. And I don't want to get, I always said, if I got to that point, you know, it's time to, it's time to get out. Um, but it's because, you know, what we're told and how you're, you know, you're told to do it. This is, this is how we have to practice medicine. And it's, I'm like trying to see, so it's like Seth Godin says, you know, be the purple cow. So, you know, my motto, Mm -hmm. I want to be like the turquoise speculum out there that (laughs) we can, that we can change the face of women's health. That's my motto because Mm -hmm. how we look at health and is exactly how we look at grief. It's old paradigms. It's old stigmas. It's you are your breast, you are your vagina, and that is it. You're emotional. Yeah. And, you know, all the things that go with the quote unquote tabloid, you know, what a woman is. Yeah. And we're not exploring the true essence of, of grief, of, of health, of what all the dimensions go into being healthy. Because our Western society, kind of just like you were talking about earlier about grief, is it's categorized. Okay. And this is what it looks like. You know, like you have the seven stages of grief Yes, and you must go through them like this. Okay. At this time. And, and you cannot be out of order or out of sync. Right. And, when pe- and like when people come in and it's like, Oh, I've got a headache. Okay. Well, here's your, you know, here's your, your, your medication, your Imitrex and go home instead of exploring like, okay, what is going on in this process? You didn't wake up, you know, you haven't had a headache. You're just, it's, this is something new. There's no time built into anything that we're doing anymore to allow for exploration of anything. Of the whole person. Yeah. The whole you know? person. Yes. Oh my gosh. I'm so glad you're saying this because this is really what it is, is we've like, as you're saying, the breast and the vagina and the widowhood, it's, it's this like path- pathological, sli- we'll just slice it out of you yep. and then you'll be fine again. And I think our fine, you know, in healthcare, in mental healthcare, in just the standards of living is, is we know that there's mental illness on one end of the spectrum. And what we call, um, you know, the middle ground, like we call that mental wellness, but I think that's just like survival town, right? Same thing with the body. Well, I can't diagnose you with anything anymore. And you tell me that you're not thriving, but you're also not sick. So like, here you go off and running. Um, And I think that we need to shift our um, focus to, can we all thrive? Can that be the new model of wellness is not, I'm not sick, so I'm well. But even bigger than that, can I thrive? Can my vagina thrive? Can my breast thrive? Can my whole being thrive? Um, regardless of the pieces and the parts that are impacted by whatever, whatever we're moving through. I think that's just such a powerful way of looking at things. And that's, you know, that's what I found was I don't want to spend an hour talking to you to decide if I'm in, um, in the anger stage or not. Like, that's not actually empowering to me and there's no action steps that I get to take next. And so the work that we're both doing, I think in health and in um, wellness and healing, this transformation from status quo to thriving is really like, let's look at what's actually happening in the entire person that you are. We have to take into account the life that you've been living up until the moment of whatever happened, the people that are in your world, the lifestyle choices that are in your world, all of the parts of you, let's look at those, right? Because someone who has, you know, a mindfulness practice and resiliency and a tribe of people who, um, you know, love them no matter what, who can see them no matter what, they're going to have a different experience with grief. 
than someone who doesn't have, you know, emotional um, intelligence tools that they've already practiced, that don't have a level of self-awareness, that don't have safe people to stand beside them and mentors to guide them. It's not a fair playing ground, just like people with health. Like if you spent your whole life eating this kind of food or this kind of food, your body's going to respond differently to treatment. And so this whole person approach, I think is, is critical instead of being diagnostic and can, let's find the pathology and cut it out. Instead, it's like, let's look at this person who's standing here before me, who has a body and a soul. And can we look at the whole thing and determine what can we, what can we offer them to be empowered on their journey forward? What can they do? And, and going back to that question you asked when you said, you know, I'm interested in talking to women who say, what's my part in this? That's what it is. The women who say, I'm not satisfied here. And I'm not satisfied with a diagnosis of grief or depression. And I'm not satisfied with, you know, the, the tools that I'm being offered that make me feel small and pathetic and stuck forever. I want something bigger than this. This box is too small. They're the ones who are willing to ask the questions, to seek the people who are willing to see the whole person and then, and then give them this path or walk beside them on this path forward on this journey toward wellness and wholeness. Yeah, definitely. And I think that, you know, for me, and especially like with your message too, is I find, I don't know, you could tell me, I find that it's, it's, it's difficult because, you know, sometimes I feel like, you know, people, I feel like I'm rolling, I tell people I'm rolling a snowball up the side of a mountain, you know, when it's 102 degrees, when you're talking to women about putting themselves, you know, forward in the forefront, looking at yourself as a, as a whole person, you know, and investing in yourself because we don't, we're not taught that as women you know, and it's not something that we see or that we're hearing. We're hearing more about it now than we ever did before, but still it's like, you're trying to cross. I find that I'm trying to cross this barrier because, you know, women pay for Botox, they'll pay for their nails, they'll pay to get their hair done and all of those things. But, you know, we don't stop to think about, you know, okay, this, this body, you know, that we're carrying, that we're here with on this planet, whatever your religious beliefs are, whatever, you know, this is what has to be healthy and it's your mind and you need to put money towards that and trying to figure it out. And like I said, I think that people are afraid. So your message is so compelling as well. They're afraid to really look at their true self, mm -hmm. you know, because we're so used to being judged in that true self, you know, and looked at like, Oh my God, she just said that, she, you know, this, I mean, mm -hmm. if somebody said to you, you know, I'm not happy in my marriage, Okay. Then we're looking at her like, oh God, she must be a bad woman. You know, well, let's not, let's not say that. Let's just be open and explore what does that mean to that person? You know, so I think that as women, you know, we're so conditioned to stuff everything down. Don't say anything to anybody. Act like it's okay all the time until you freaking break down mm -hmm. with illness or loss or disease. And then it's like, then, it, then that becomes okay. So why, you know, it's okay then, you know, I'm like, I don't get that, yeah. you know? Well, some of it, I love that you said, you know, what they'll pay for and all of those things that you listed off, the nails and the hair and the Botox is all immediate and somebody else does the work. And we, we certainly live in a culture where we have an expectation of immediate fixes where somebody else takes care of it. Um, and that comes back to that personal responsibility piece. But the other thing I heard you saying in there is, um, and this is like the most important part of my message is sisterhood. And it's a thing that's dead in our culture that we have to like breathe new life into because we need each other. And we've been told we don't. In fact, we've been taught that each other, we sisters, are the enemy. Mm -hmm. I grew up in a world where I wanted, I didn't want anything to do with my own femininity, and I certainly didn't want anything to do with my sisters. Yeah, you know, I, I, I bought into the myth that women are crazy and they're irrational and like they can't be trusted and they're backstabbers. Um, until I started having babies, and that brought me into this whole new way of being with other women because suddenly we were all in this very vulnerable state of what the hell are we doing? None <laughs> of us knew what we were doing. We didn't know how to breastfeed. We didn't, didn't know where to birth. Everything we read was something different about this vaccine or not this vaccine and what should we do? And it created this really equal playing field of vulnerability and confusion and fear. And that brought us together in this, in this new way of, oh my gosh, these women, I feel safe and seen by these women who can actually understand what my journey is. And so I think, um, you know, we talked about cultivating a tribe of unconditional love who's willing to see you and be with you. And I think that comes from sisterhood. If you can find those women in your world who are, are paying attention the same way as you are, because you can surround yourself with negativity all day long. You can surround yourself with catty gossip garbage all day long, but you can also find women 
who are radiant and brilliant and paying attention and being true and empathetic and vulnerable. And that doesn't mean soft. They're more powerful because of all of those things they've found in themselves. They have their eyes wide open and their feet on the ground. And those are the ones that I want beside me. And so I think when we reevaluate our relationships in our life and we seek out sisterhood, that's where we find solidarity. That's where we find true support. That's where we find true friendship. And that's also where we find ourselves because they can see the truth of us and help us see her too. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. So I want to, I want to end things here, but I want you to tell me, because I always ask everybody, tell us, you know, talk to some women out there who either are maybe going through grief, you know, recent, you know, past or whatever. Um, what are some strategies that they can do to kind of help ease the process and come out as, like you said, a whole person? Something around that. And talk to me a little bit too about, you know, what do you do for your self-care? What does it look like? Because we're big on that over here, like finding that self-care routine for yourself and all of that. Yeah. Well, um, obviously to all the women out there who are grieving, whatever your transition is, and please don't compare if it's your dog or your friend or your daughter or your job or your leg or your hair, like whatever the thing is that you're grieving, give yourself permission to grieve that because so often we categorize it and we say, this is stupid for me to be worried about because there's people dying over there. It's real and it's important to be honored. So create space in your life for that to be a real thing. And the people who aren't willing to let it be real, set them to the side and invite the ones closer who can be in it with you. Um, I think that's probably one of the most important pieces of advice. It seems so simple, but let it be a real thing. This is a real powerful experience. It's a, it's a catalyst for transformation for you. And if we can see grief as gratitude for what has been, instead of this attack of pathology that happens to us and we're screwed up and we're not like, we can't be trusted and we're irrational and nobody, make, nobody understands us. If we can see it as just this really profound expression of gratitude, like, thank you for this thing that I had whether it was your dog or your friend or your leg or your daughter, who, whatever it was, like that was a really powerful, special thing that you had. And, and the thing that comes next is this processing of it's gone. And I think um, we live in a world that teaches us to um, sort of like immortalize the thing that is gone because we're so afraid of losing it. And so the, there's this idea that, that if you can pan back and see the story of your life, you were born you had a childhood, you probably crashed a bike at some point, you probably crashed a car at some point. If you can see the longevity, the, the big picture, the span of your life, that person that, or that thing that you lost is a part of it, but it isn't the whole of it. And I know that it feels that way because when something so crucial to the core of our identity and the core of our story is removed, it leaves this big gaping hole. And we live in a world where there isn't a lot of ritual, there isn't a lot of ceremony, there isn't a lot of vulnerability or, or um, cultural grief that happens. You're left to do it on your own. And so what we end up doing is we spend all of our time sort of patching that hole up and shoring it up and, and painting it beautifully and creating memorials and, and spending our life sort of honoring the memory. And I'm not suggesting for one minute that you should forget. In fact, you won't forget. I happen to know that that's a real thing. You can go on living and you won't forget any of it. But people don't tell us that the other option um, is to honor what has been and keep writing the story of your life. Because the truth is, you're not gone. You didn't die. You're still here. And now you have this perspective of the gift of life. You understand how it can be over like that. You understand that this moment right now today is really the only one that we are guaranteed for sure. You understand the importance of making memories, of spending time with people you love, of feeling the sun on your face in a way that it only can on that perfect summer day when it's coming through the trees just right. When you can start to see your life as this rich gift, even with the thing that's missing from it alongside, and instead of trying to push that grief away, you sort of welcome it as a companion while you need it, while you're processing, because there's so much unconscious process that has to happen in our head and our heart. There's also a lot of external process that has to happen. And I think that's where, you know, we've, we've handed people talk therapy and say, go talk to somebody about it. That will help. And it, and it does some, but I don't think it's enough. I think that we have to integrate it even more wholly into our life to really understand it. But I think like what I mean when I say pick up the pen and keep writing is that if you can look up from the rubble of your grief and the brokenness that you feel 
you'll notice that even though you feel despair and sadness, there's also this magical thing called life happening all around you. And if you can let yourself be in both places, if you can let yourself feel the grief and feel the joy that happens in those moments where it's confusing because you're like, I'm supposed to be grieving, but I'm laughing right now. This feels confusing. It is confusing. It's also real. You're not crazy. Um, If we can create space for life, if we can create space for gratitude, let yourself reflect, but also let yourself be open to the possibilities that come next. Um, I think that's where you're going to find your way forward. And don't do it alone. You don't have to. And we live in a world that teaches us that. So things like, um, you know, sisterhood that we talked about earlier, things like support from professionals who, whose message resonates with you. Um, that's where you're going to find your way forward because we all have blind spots that we can't see, which is why I, the excellent life coach, has a life coach because we all need somebody to help us figure out where to put our next step on the journey. Yeah, I hear that. So tell everybody, okay, I know that you have a book, so tell us about that and tell us where can we find you and, you know, are you on the gram? Are you on Facebook? All that kind of good stuff. I'm on Instagram and Facebook at um, Grief Unveiled. My book is called Grief Unveiled, A Widow's Guide to Navigating Your Journey in Life After Loss. And I was really careful about how I wrote the title of that book because I was given so many books on grief um, and they all made me feel, well, I didn't even want to read them, right? And so um, it's your journey, right? And this is a guide that will give you perspective and um, and ideas on how to proceed. But like nobody knows the best thing for you. Only you do. You are your own guru, and so it's really meant to be this companion for your journey. So um, you can connect with me at griefunveiled.com. Um, yeah, I'm all over the internet land. Well, cool. Thank you so much. It was such a great conversation. And I know that our listeners are going to get a lot out of it. And just thank you from the bottom of my heart. I thank you it. for inviting me here to have this lovely conversation with you. Yeah, no, thank you so much. And ladies, okay, so you heard a lot today and, you know, stay tuned, come back for next episode and, you know, we'll talk to you soon. Have a blessed week. I love you very much and bye for now.